very happy to be invited to address this conference on connection between theology and spirituality in St. Gregory Palamas. And uh, so here we get on to a slightly different, uh, slightly different flavor, slightly different uh, approach um, to theology than um, of that of many of the figures we've looked at already in this conference, although I think um, Meister Eckhart is quite a nice stepping, stepping stone for moving into the Byzantine East. And in terms of the, the, the logic and rationale of this conference, I think one could hardly hope for a stronger example of the connection between theological doctrine and spiritual practice than that provided by St. Gregory Palamas, uh, 1296 to 1357 or 59. And his whole theological experience is absolutely grounded and shaped in, in monastic practice and shaped by spiritual experience. And moreover, his teaching became the settled doctrine of the Orthodox Church as attested in a series of Constantinopolitan councils between 1341 and 1368. He also has a very pronounced place in the liturgical every second Sunday of Great Lent um, as a kind of second triumph of orthodoxy. Now, Palamas, it seems to me, is directly behind Vladimir Lossky's uh, relatively well-known remark that uh, far from being mutually opposed, theology and mysticism support and complete one another. The one is impossible without the other, straight out of Palamas. I also gave you his, his Triparion, you know, the main hymn of his feast, which describes him, among other things, and it's on your handout, as the glory of the monks, protector of theologians. I think that quite nicely uh, sums up Palamas's um, absolutely unshakable. There can be no separation between theology and spirituality, between mysticism and doctrine. So I can't really give a very detailed account of his life, but I did at least give you uh, the chronology uh, on the handout. You see, he came from a rather good uh, family in Constantinople, but at the age of 18, took himself off to Mount Athos. And his whole life, of course, was um, spent um, as, as a monk. His instincts were very much towards the slightly more informal uh, forms of monasticism found on Athos and elsewhere. So not necessarily the big Kinovia, but smaller skeets or smaller monastic settlements. Um, he is very much part of this hesychast monastic tradition, which of course goes right back into the um, patristic and early monastic era. Um, a tradition of monasticism that cultivates stillness, as a here, uh, a tradition of monasticism that focuses on prayers, and especially the prayer of the intellect in the heart, um, that um, prayer being focused on the name of Christ, on the name of Jesus, so-called Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, as it's sometimes added. But this tradition of saying the Jesus prayer is absolutely the heart everything that Palamas does and says. The hesychast monks of his acquaintance on Athos and, and elsewhere um, would frequently speak of the prayer of the intellect and the heart, the Jesus prayer leading to, in some circumstances, the vision of God as light. And they would state quite categorically that the light witnessed in prayer is the very light of the divinity that shone from Christ on Mount Tabor, the Taboric light. And um, 
again, we can't understand uh, Panamas without appreciating this focus on the light um, of the transfiguration, the divine, and as he would emphatically argue, uncreated light that shone from Christ um, on the mountain. I mean, Panamas lived in tumultuous times. It was a time when the, the Roman or Byzantine Empire was shrinking, um, surrounded on all sides by the Turks, and indeed he spends uh, a couple of years in, as a prisoner of the Turks. He's involved in a civil war, um, although the civil war going on at the time was largely about dynastic issues. It also um, involved the Panamite, uh, Panamite theology and the uh, discussions about how can we understand the vision of God as light? What exactly are we seeing? Believe it or not, that was a major trope in the civil war going on at the time. So we're dealing with a, a time of great military and political and economic difficulty. But interestingly, um, also a great time of spiritual and artistic um, renaissance. Um, if you've ever seen the, the, the monasteries, uh, the monastery frescoes at, in um, Constantinople, Istanbul, Monastery of Christ at Kora, um, that famous image of the resurrection, Christ uh, bringing Adam and Eve out of hell, that comes from precisely this period of artistic renaissance. And also it's a period of great spiritual renaissance, um, a renaissance of hesychast um, spirituality. So that much just briefly in terms of um, Palamas's life. Um, and background. So Palamas, <clears throat> Gregory Palamas's whole theological effort can be summed up as a defense of the reality of mystical experience and above all the reality of the vision of God as light. And in focusing on light in this way, he is drawing not only on some of his Hesychast forebears that I mentioned, but also on earlier figures in the patristic tradition, such as Macarius, the fourth century author of the Macarian homilies, uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, Maximus, um, and I've given you a fairly typical quote from uh, Macarius in the fourth century here, uh, talking about the vision of God as light. And uh, Macarius is the, I think above all, the figure in the earlier tradition who speaks of the vision of God as light, as the summit of Christian experience and the goal towards which all Christians um, ought to um, aspire. And he is quite categorical that this is the very light of the divinity. Um, quote one of your handout has Macarius calling this light uh, the glory of the divine nature, the beauty of the age to come, divine and celestial fire, inexpressible noetic light, foretaste and pleasure spirit, the sanctifying oil of gladness. But it's very interesting that Palamas doesn't only uh, refer to Eastern sources in, in teaching that the vision of God as light is the very theme of the Christian life. And I, I thought particularly for this, for this context and, and for this audience, it might be um, worth mentioning that he also draws on St. Benedict and the, the vision of light or some sort of divine light that St. Benedict has, as recorded in Pope Gregory the Great's uh, Life of Benedict, which was translated into Greek by Pope Zacharias and became rather popular, in fact, in the Orthodox world. But even today on Mount Athos, you'll find monks called Benedict, and um, the Benedictine tradition uh, was actually represented at one time by having its own house on Mount Athos, um, the monastery of the Amalfitans. Anyhow, I'll be saying a bit more shortly about St. Benedict. So Palamas sees the vision of God as, as light, of course, as an integral part of his understanding and defense of the doctrine of theosis or deification. And he fought to the end of his days, in very tumultuous times, to defend the reality of God's self-revelation to the creature and the reality of human participation in the divine without ever compromising divine transcendence, unknowability and simplicity. So Gregory articulates his theological vision in what he as a highly coherent and consistent 
if not strictly systematic fashion. He makes disciplined and restrained use of philosophy and philosophical reasoning, but grounds his theology above all in scripture, patristic and conciliar tradition, and crucially, the experience of the saints. And this last dimension um, is rarely effective theology um, in the Christian West, I think um, you could, uh, I would argue. Anyhow, for Gregory, theology is never a done deal. The scope of revelation is never exhausted. Just as the central truths of the faith, the doctrines of the Trinity and of the person of Christ were articulated and unfolded over time, so also in his own time were the mysteries of deification and the vision of God being, and this is a quote, uh, you can find um, quote two on the handout, uh, the mysteries of deification in his own time were being mystically and prophetically revealed by the Holy Spirit to those initiated by actual experience. And crucially, not only to those who have this actual experience, but to those, also to those who trust the experience of the saints without necessarily being vouchsafed that experience themselves. And I won't go through the whole of um, quote two, you'll find that material um, there. And note he's using this term pira, which has a long established uh, pira experience, a long established place in the uh, monastic and ascetic tradition. Pira experience uh, denoting direct and perceptible apprehension of divine activity and presence. So in this um, you know, necessarily, necessarily relatively brief presentation, I'm, trying, I'm going to try to give an overall flavor of Panamas's spiritual theological teaching while, while paying particular attention to areas of interface between doctrine and practice to what we might call the experiential dimension of theology. And I've divided the paper up into uh, seven, seven parts, seemed a good number. Um, all the Byzantines were very interested in number symbolism. So. Anyway, number one is the, the body. And in fact, the, the various controversies that um, Palamas got involved in didn't start off with precisely the question of, say, the essence energies, distinction, or what have you, but more around the role of the body in the spiritual life. Does the body have any place to, uh, within the spiritual life, within mystical experience? So Palamas's first main um, opponent, um, Valam, the Calabrian, um, had suggested that the body had no real role to play in the spiritual life. Um, the best we could hope for in this life was some sort of limited and certainly created intellectual illumination, not unlike that perhaps safe to the philosophers of old. And Valam the Calabrian was horrified by the Hesychas monk's claim to see God as light and even to have some sort of physical apprehension of the divine light. And Valam castigated them as Messalians on this ground, ridiculing their ascetic practices um, and denouncing them as omphalopsychoi, those who have their um, souls in their navels. So the first, um, I think targeting there the habit that some Hesychas monks had of crouching on a small stool while um, saying uh, the Jesus prayer. And Palamas leapt straight to the defense of the ascetic practices of the monks, upholding a holistic account of the human person comprised of both body and soul held together in the heart. Again, this is very much an anthropology going deep into the patristic tradition, especially, I think, to Macarius. And for Panamas, uh, there's a way in which our human spanning of the material and spiritual realms makes us higher, not lower, than the angels. Moreover, it's the very unity of the human person centered on the heart 
that allows for the spiritual or intellectual vision of God, um, which is an experience in the first instance of the noose or intellect, to be passed on in some secondary fashion to the body. So while the vision of the Taboric light is undoubtedly in the first instance an intellectual vision, the vision of the noose, the intellect, enabled by God's transformation and elevation of the spiritual senses, it can also have so a perception of overwhelming light, warmth, and so forth. And Palamas works out uh, the role of the body in mystical experience rather carefully on the basis of the doctrine of the spiritual senses and a holistic anthropology grounded in the heart. So my second section, uh, section concerns the uh, famous essence energies distinction. So what exactly is seen in the vision of the divine light? Palamas is emphatic that such visions, visions of the Taboric light, are indeed absolutely visions of God, but of God and his self-revelation to the creature, and not God in his unnameable and utterly ineffable divine being or essence. Following a long-established and hardly novel patristic distinction between the divine essence and the totality of God's self-revelation in his attributes and activities, Palamas upholds the indisputable truth recognized in both East and West that in seeing God, we do not see all that God is, but rather precisely that which God re reveals to us and enables us to see in accordance with the finite capacity of the creature. So far from being some sort of abstract theologizing or some sort of mystical muddle, Panamas's articulation of the essence energies distinction is in fact a very precise and careful exposition of the dialectic of divine hiddenness and self-revelation that allows Panamas to affirm the reality the vision of God as light without supposing that God is comprehended or apprehended or circumscribed by that vision. And here we're moving on to uh, Benedict as promised. So in the Triads, one of his uh, better known and fairly early works, following a treatment of St. Paul as an archetypal initiate into the infinitude of divine light, uh, a vision of a sun more vast and grand than the universe as Panamas puts it, Palamas turns to Macarius and then Benedict as further witnesses to the same divine light. So this is in fact quote uh, three on your handout. So Macarius declared the light to be infinite and super celestial. Another saint among the most perfect of them, doesn't actually give Benedict's name interestingly, another saint and among the most perfect of them saw the whole universe contained within a single ray that same divine light, that same light witnessed by Macarius, by Paul, by others, that same intelligible sun. Benedict, like Macarius, like Paul, did not see the nature or full measure of this light, but saw rather that which he had become capable of receiving. Through this contemplation, through this supra-intellectual union with the light, he saw and learned not what the light is, but that it is, that it is supernatural and super-essential, that it differs from all beings, that it is absolute and unique, and that it mystically contains all things within itself. So for Palamas, the distinction between God in his hiddenness and God in his self-revelation is always, following Dionysian terminology, a distinction that unites. Palamas will never speak of the distinction without also emphasizing the unity of essence and energies. And in fact, although we tend to call it by shorthand, the essence energies distinction. We should probably call it the essence energies union and distinction. Uh, note that Palamas never in his entire corpus calls a distinction a real distinction. It's a common misconception. But he certainly affirms that it's more than a merely conceptual distinction. 
um, but is equally emphatic that it no more is the divine simplicity than does the distinction of the divine persons. Indeed, for Palamas, it becomes rather difficult to maintain divine simplicity without also affirming the essence energy's distinction and union, at least if one wants to uphold a distinctly Christian as opposed to merely philosophical doctrine of a God actually involved in his calling that creation to deifying union with him. Moving to the third part, Christology. Palamas's teaching on Unio Mystica is profoundly Christocentric and built on solid Christological principles. You will have already noted the centrality of Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor in Palamas's various accounts of the vision of God as light. In prayer, and above all, the Jesus prayer, focused, of course, on the name of Jesus Christ, the Hesychasts, as Palamas argues, witnessed the same divine and uncreated light that shone from Christ on the mountain. And that same light will shine forth from the bodies of the saints at the resurrection. Moreover, Palamas's whole teaching on essence and energies grounds itself explicitly in the Christological framework of Maximus and the Sixth Ecumenical Council. Christ has both a human and divine nature, and thus both a human and divine energy, and of course will. Where there is a nature, there is an energy. Uh, that's good Aristotle. But Christ's natures are neither to be confused with or separated from, a bit of Chalcedonian language there, neither confused with nor separated from his energies. Again, we, we are to distinguish in order to unite. In mystical union, says Palamas, we are united to Christ, according to energy. Moving on now uh, briefly to pneumatology. Union with God in Christ is, of course, also and simultaneously the work of the Holy Spirit. Even as the Hesychasts invoked the Lord Jesus Christ in the Jesus prayer, they did so in the Holy Spirit. For, of course, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It's invariably the Holy Spirit who's invoked as the immediate dispenser of the divine operation. Deification, says Palamas, and you'll see some of this on quote four um, on your handout. Deification is not accomplished in some imitative or relative fashion, like persons who share the same disposition and who love one another, but demands and requires rather the deifying grace of the spirit. Again and again in Palamas's corpus, spiritual experience is defined as experience of the spirit and specifically the energies and operation of that same spirit. Now, moving on to section five, the Trinity. As we've been building up to, uh, the experience of deifying grace is inescapably a Trinitarian operation. And this is another aspect of Panamas's teaching, which I think is often misunderstood. It's inseparability uh, from the doctrine of the um, Trinity. So to go back again to the Sixth Ecumenical Council, of Constantinople, that council established that energy is operative on the level of the person, or hypostasis. In Christ, there are two natures, thus two energies, two wills, but only one active subject, one person, one actor, one willer. By extension, the energy or operation of God is only ever a Trinitarian operation. The energies are not impersonal, but come from the Father, through the Son, and are made known in the Spirit. And that, that dynamic, that grammar, uh, both eternal and temporal, is evident even in his early apodictic treatises, uh, written uh, surrounding the question of the Filioque, where he writes, the spirit eternally flows forth from the father into the son and becomes manifest in the saints from the father through the son. 
That's what I've called elsewhere an orthodox filioque, but they won't go into that at the moment. And this dynamic, this grammar, is also evident in Palamas's brief but exact confession produced at the Council of Constantinople in 1351, who having invoked the eternal divine perichoresis, in which the spirit proceeds from the Father and rests eternally in the Son, Palamas goes on to speak of the manifestation of the spirit in the creation from the Father through the Son. But this mission of the spirit, this manifestation of God in the world, in his deifying energies, is a common task. Palamas goes on to explain, and I've given you this in quote five. <clears throat> the spirit is not made known according to essence, for no one has ever seen or revealed God's nature, but according to grace, power, operation, which is common to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The distinguishing feature of each is the hypostasis and whatever refers to it. They not only possess mutually the superessential essence, which is entirely unnameable, unrevealed, and incommunicable, but the grace, the power, the operation, the brightness, the kingdom, the incorruption, and put it simply, all the means by which God communicates, and by which, according to grace, he is united with the holy angels and humans, without ever being deprived of his simplicity, either as a result of the divisibility and of the hypostases, or the powers and operations. And you'll see, again, there, this emphasis on divine simplicity we have uh, throughout Panamas' teaching. So the divine energies are, in short, inescapably and irrefragibly Trinitarian in character. While it's frequently the spirit who is invoked as the immediate source of sanctification and deification, the one who incorporates humans into the divine life, this is always to be understood as a Trinitarian operation. Far from being impersonal rays streaming out from some unfathomable and inaccessible forbidden zone or augurant of divinity, the energies are inescapably the operations and attributes of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So my sixth point concerns the relation between God and the world, between the cosmic dimension of mystical experience in Palamas. And that's something we already saw intimated in the vision of Benedict, the whole universe contained within a ray of the spiritual sun. So the essence energies distinction, or the essence energies union and distinction, allows Palamas to make some remarkable declarations concerning the coherence God and the creation, again doing so on the basis of mystical experience. While remaining inaccessible and unknowable according to his essence, God reveals and manifests himself in the world. So God is truly omnipresent throughout the creation. And here we turn to quotes six and seven on the handout. God both is and is said to be the nature of all beings, insofar as all partake of him and subsist by means of this participation. Not, however, by participation in his nature, far from it, but by participation in his energy. And the second quote there, quote seven. Yet God is also in all things, and all things are in God, the one sustaining, the other being sustained by him. Thus all things participate in God's sustaining energy, but not in his essence. Hence the theologians say that the divine omnipresence also constitutes an energy of God. All this, it seems to me, looks rather like what the modern Russian uh, theologian Sergius Bulgakov called God in the world and the world in God. Or indeed what William Blake would call heaven in a wild flower and infinity in the palm of your hand. Or again, what Gerald Manny Hopkins would hear him as a world charged with the grandeur of God. So this cosmic dimension of mystical experience in Palamas 
seems to me has enormous potential implications for the healing of the woeful state of relations between man and his created environment. So I'll move now to my seventh, my seventh topic, um, which is wisdom, uh, my seventh pillar of wisdom, as it were. Panamas has a good deal to say about uh, wisdom. He allots a, a modest but um, respectable place to human wisdom, human philosophy, so long as it's properly directed towards the one who is wisdom. He's even um, on occasion prepared to defend the Latins, believe it or not, for their fondness for syllogisms. You know, let us not blame the Latins for using syllogisms. We've been taught by the fathers to use syllogisms. Um, it's a very interesting quote if one um, um, has a sort of preconception of a dichotomy between a, a sort of mystical um, East and a rationalistic um, West. And Panamas, in fact, had some uh, definite connections with the uh, with Latin theology. I mean, we mentioned Benedict. Um, he also draws fairly extensively on Augustine, uh, even some of Augustine's Trinitarian theology and imagery. And his um, some of his um, foes would try, in fact, and uh, paint him as a bit of a Latin sympathizer, which was a dangerous thing to be called in the context of um, 14th century um, Byzantium, because he did maintain connections with the Knights at Rhodes, and um, uh, in particular. Anyhow, natural human wisdom, says uh, Panamas, is capable of great knowledge of the created world, is capable of discerning the existence of a creator, for example, um, and it also has a role to play in the proclamation and defense of truths, spiritual truths manifest in scripture and witnessed in the lives and experience um, of the saints. Gregory is quite frank about his own use of certain methods of Greek philosophical argumentation in this regard. Indeed, he seems to have um, followed the standard profane curriculum of the time. He developed uh, um, such a good knowledge of Aristotle in his youth that he was put to perform before the emperor, uh, showing off his mastery of um, Aristotle. But Panamas is equally insistent that we have to um, strictly restrict the place of philosophy within theology. Um, philosophy can only ever be an ancillary. Um, you know, one occasion he'll talk about um, taking venom from steaks as an antidote. So I'll say that perhaps that's what we're doing with Greek philosophy sometimes. Um, but other, elsewhere, he's actually rather positive about the limited but definite um, place that philosophy has uh, within theology. And when it's properly subordinated uh, to theology, it is transposed and transformed into something rather interesting, to something which brings us uh, in contact with the one who is wisdom. But wisdom, said, is, is above all a category of mystical experience for Palamas. It's an energy of God that reveals God's own essential wisdom, most especially in the vision of God as light. So as wisdom, God reaches across the ontological gulf to unite creatures to himself. The divine wisdom allows herself to be shared by those who show themselves wise. I speak now of the wisdom contemplated in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the divine gift, the divine energy of wisdom, infinitely superior to merely human wisdom, and indeed bears no affinity to it. Only the gift of the energy of divine wisdom, what he calls our theosophy, truly realizes the image of God within human beings, in and through theosis. And this focus on wisdom goes some way to explaining why his contachion hails him first and foremost. This is another um, 
him in his honor. Um, his Kentakian hails him first and foremost as a holy and divine instrument of wisdom. So there you go, my, those are my seven um, main um, areas where we see um, an interface between spiritual experience and dogmatic theology. And as I emphasized in the beginning, what's perhaps extraordinary about Palamas, particularly if he can, you compare him to anyone else, um, anyone in the Christian West, is the extent to which his account of mystical experience becomes the basis of the formation and uh, canonization of dogmatic theology in a series of councils um, in Constantinople in the 14th century. Anyhow, to, 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 begin to, to wrap up some sort of conclusion, um, at the end of this brief presentation on the experiential theology of St. Gregory Palamas, it's, of course, been something of a whistle-stop tour. It should have given some impression of the intimate and organic connection established by Gregory Palamas between theology and spirituality, between mysticism and dogma. Palamas' theology has aptly been described by Father George Florovsky as a theology of facts. Theology of facts. And this characterization, I think, holds true not only for Gregory's acute sense of salvation history, of the whole drama of sin and redemption, but also for his unshakable conviction that the history of each and every human soul finds its telos only in the experience, the pira, of the divine and deifying operation of the perfectly simple triune God. Thank you. I should finish that. Thank you, Professor Plastad, for a wonderful uh, introduction, overview, and analysis of uh, the most intriguing references there to some of his uh, webs. So, as usual, I will give um, uh, I will give priority to other people's questions and comments. Usually, it takes a couple of minutes for the chat boxes uh, to get going. Um, I forgot to mention one of the books that he is co-edited work of research in the tradition, which is the brand new Oxford Handbook of the Reception of Aquinas, of which uh, Dr. Plested is one of, I believe, two editors. Um, that, of course, then also includes this uh, little known and uh, too little studied Byzantine tradition uh, in the uh, Thomistic heritage. Um, that just came out a month ago, and several members of our institute here were uh, contributing essays to that as well. Um, so I did see a chat uh, comment. For those, I will read them as usual uh, for the sake of our uh, YouTube listeners uh, and the Facebook listeners. For those of us interested in learning more about Palamas and his thought, could you recommend a particular work to start? I, I would say that John Meindorf's book on Panama, the study of the 50s, 60s, remains the, the, the best introduction to Panama. There's a very good book that came out more recently, The, the Making of more perhaps to do not so much with Panama's teaching itself, but with the kind of the legacy of Panama and various debates around Panama. And you know, as you know, a lot of people here uh, will, will know there's um, there's some uh, there's been lively debate over Palamas between East and West over the years. So Mayendorf and Russell, I'd um, start off with. 
So next question, I think he simply one part of your uh, presentation. This is, uh, I believe it's the priest, Father Lukash Saviki. Uh, to what extent and how does monastic practice or experience Hezekiah, question mark, influence Palamas's teaching? Yes, well, I, I think you, 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 you cannot, and I hope I gave some sense of this in the talk, perhaps I skated over it very quickly, but um, cannot um, underestimate absolute centrality of monastic experience um, to Palamas. I mean, as I was mentioning in his sort of brief overview of his, his life, his own ascetic inclinations were very much towards small monastic communities. Um, so a sort of semi-eremitic model where you'd have maybe two or three monks in a cell, um, possibly coming together um, as a broader community with other monks of the uh, neighborhood on a Saturday and Sunday, spending much of their time in their cell praying the Jesus prayer again and again, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. Um, this, um, this prayer, this, this, this tradition of cultivating inner stillness that flourished more in these smaller monastic settlements than in the great Canovia um, was, as I indicated, um, very much tradition of the prayer, of the intellect in the heart. It demanded hezekiah, stillness, quiet contemplation. It demanded constant recitation of the Jesus prayer, so a focus on Christ. But note, you know, also as I indicated, that the Jesus prayer is inescapably um, Trinitarian in character. One cannot call Jesus Lord except in the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned from Paul. Um, uh, Christ, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so we have Father, Son, and Spirit clearly there in the Jesus prayer. But this, um, and this would often be said over and over again, um, possibly, well, certainly not lying down. I mean, one of the things Palamas is able to point out against Balaam, it doesn't matter what we're doing with our bodies in prayer, and if we simply lie down, well, probably go to sleep but uh, you see you'd stand up you'll sit on a stool rather than a chair well a stool you know you need a bit more balance you're going to stay awake <laughs> so this whole here stillness the prayer of the intellect in the heart as practiced on athos and elsewhere at the time was very frequently bound up with among some people uh, panama's calls the saints of his own time um, with the experience or vision of god as light and sometimes the, the, the monks, and indeed nuns, would talk about um, um, the vision of God as light as having some sort of physical counterpart, whether that's simply a sense of overwhelming light or even a sense of warmth and so forth. Um, they didn't necessarily do that very carefully, and their opponents could easily ridicule them for supposing we're seeing God with our physical eyes, which, of course, is the old and ancient heresy of the Messalians, which gets uh, dotted out um, quite a number of times in this controversy. The Palamas, as, 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 we, as we were saying, um, leaps to the defense of these monks, leaps to the defense of the idea that we can indeed see God as light, but it is not a physical in, um, experience, at least in the first instance. Palamas develops a very complex and sophisticated understanding of the spiritual senses, those faculties within the human person capable of direct apprehension of spiritual realities. So it's with the spiritual senses, with the noose, with the transformed senses of the spirit that we see God, but because we are a unity of body and soul grounded in the heart as the sort of a link piece of the human uh, constitution, um, 
the intellectual experience of the divine light can have some sort of physical epiphenomenon in terms of some sort of physical sense of light, some sort of physical sense of warmth and so forth. So, you know, it's all about spiritual experience in Palamas. I mean, he gets into this controversy, you know, primarily to, to defend the monk's claim to see God, specifically to see the Taboric light, the light song come from Christ on table. This is a, a recurrent feature, not only of the earlier patristic tradition, but also some earlier Hesychast sources, Nicephorus, the Hesychast, Gregory of Sinai, and so forth. Um, to see God as light, to see the very light that shone from Christ on table. And he, he wants to say this is a vision of God as light, but it's not the vision of all that God is. And you know, no human can have a vision of all that God is. Um, we must be seeing God as he reveals himself to us, um, God as he makes us capable of receiving him. Um, there's always going to be some sort of limit to um, what we can see of God, but he's absolutely adamant that this is indeed a vision of God. When we talk about essence, when we talk about energies, we're talking about God, but we're talking about God in his hiddenness on the one hand and his unknowability, his transcendence um, in terms of the divine essence, but also God in his self-giving, his self-revelation to and in God in his energies. So it's all a defense of spiritual practice. Um, everything in Palamas is a defense of spiritual practice, this practice of hesychasm, this practice of the Jesus prayer, this claim to be able to see God as light. And, it, and it's interesting that Palamas never affirms that kind of experience himself. And this is one reason why in, um, I think it was quote, uh, quote two, um, in the Tome of the Holy Mountain authored by Palamas, you know, he not only talks about those who do indeed see God as light, but also those who trust the experience of those who see God as light. And um, elsewhere, he'll talk about three classes of theologians. So the, the, the first class of theologian, the true theologian, is the one who sees God who sees God as light, you know, the, the monks and nuns that he's talking about who see God as light. He doesn't claim to be one of those first-class theologians himself. He's one of the second-class of theologians, those who trust the experience of the saints and trust that it is possible to see God as light. We also say there's a third-class of theologian, um, those who do not trust the experience of the saints. And it's quite clear that he's putting his enemy, um, Valam the Calabrian, in the box. There. So he only ever claims to be a second-class theologian. Of course, that's always a great comfort for those of us like myself who have not seen God as light. <laughs> uh, Marcus, you had a reference there to uh, experience as a, as a source for dogmatic theology being more typically Eastern and Western. And it was reminding me of a very intriguing text that uh, Father Chardonnance quoted to us yesterday. Uh, in Italian from the John commentary of Aquinas, where on the basis of Augustine, he says that the affirmations or precepts of sacred scripture should be interpreted following the, the deeds of the saints, ex facti sanctorum in Latin, which is an unusual but very intriguing passage in, in, in Thomas. Um, not quite the same thing, huh? but maybe there's a relation yeah. there. Um, yes, I like that. Uh, I mean, as you know, I'm not one to... Um, in any way accentuate the differences between the East and West, right. there are some, right. um, and, and certainly experience is an important category for theology and exegesis uh, in Christian West. But what I think is perhaps unique about Palamas is that theological um, defense and articulation of the essence-energy distinction built on mystical experience makes its way directly into conciliar formulations of dogmatic theology. Mm -hmm. 
which I don't think ever happens in the Christian West in quite that way. No, no. <laughs> uh, I cannot do all of the comments, and it's always good to, to keep the comments fairly brief um, for various reasons. I will skip down to, I will just read it for the, the people online from Monk Maximus, uh, who I believe is an Angelicum graduate. Uh, from the 1990s, he says, what is your thought on some trying to present Palamas as a champion of orthodoxy against the Latin West? Is there an ecumenical middle point where we can all agree? It's fairly open-ended, right? So. Yes, nice. Well, I do think Palamas is, um, contrary to the way in which he, he, he has tended to be received historically in the context of East-West theological debates and polemics and so forth. Um, it's worth noting that Palamas is far more positively disposed to Latin theology than any of his major opponents. So Valam thinks that Thomas Aquinas is demonically inspired. Um, uh, Akindinos has no time for Latin theology at all um, and ridicules it. And Gregorius has no time for Latin theology at all. Um, Palamas, as I've mentioned, you know, draws on Benedict, that's very nice, draws on Augustine, um, defends the Latin use of the syllogism, has contacts with Latins in the Eastern Mediterranean. He's far more disposed, well disposed towards Latin theology than, uh, um, and, than, than, than his opponents, and actually makes very constructive use of Western theology. I mean, interestingly, in this, this issue of the Filioque, even, he'll borrow some of um, Augustine's uh, language for speaking about the Holy Spirit, for example, as the pre-eternal rejoicing of the Father and the Son, going back to um, the Book of Proverbs, of course, and actually works out a, you know, a rather sophisticated understanding of Trinitarian relations, which at least has some um, ironic potential vis-a-vis -vis the Latin West, even though he certainly wouldn't accept the place of the Filioque in the Creed or any other um, source or P.E. or divinity um, than the Father. And nonetheless, there's a sense of an eternal relation within the Trinity. It's probably called elsewhere an Orthodox filioque, uh, even. Um, and of course, I, I, you know, I haven't really said much about it, but yeah, very often Palamas's um, theology has been um, seen as problematic um, from uh, the perspective of Latin or Western theology. I mean, it's interesting, it's never come up in a big way in any big, in any of the reunion councils, for example, is basically kept off the agenda of Ferrara Florence, uh, perhaps for good reason. Um, and later, Latin writers have often castigated it. Um, within our, our modern context, going back to Martin Jugi's groundbreaking work on, on Palamas in the early 20th century, Palamas's account of the essence energy distinction has been seen as a grave assault on divine simplicity. Which is one reason why I've been I've been emphasising uh, divine simplicity um, throughout the paper here, which is uh, absolutely non-negotiable for Palamas, and indeed very much tied up with his understanding of the essence energy distinction. Not just that the essence energy distinction doesn't rupture divine simplicity, but it's necessary to the proclamation and defence of divine simplicity uh, for Palamas. And you know, many modern Western critics of Palamas, um, I'm thinking of people like Catherine Nacuño or Robert Jensen or Dorothea Wenderborg. Um, will often um, attack him for his apparent uh, rupturing of divine simplicity um, without really understanding what he's saying, I think, about divine simplicity, or accuse him of missing out the Trinitarian persons. You might see this in 
Andre von Ivanka's account of Palamas as well, which basically has Palamas as a Neoplatonic figure who has a sort of a one which emanates forth these energies, missing totally this Trinitarian dimension. So although Palamas has again and again been a sort of bone of contention between East and West, I think if we really look, go deep into Palamas, look at Palamas's own work, look at Palamas's own appropriation of Latin theology, um, look at um, what he's actually saying about the essence energy's union and distinction, what he's saying about the connection between that distinction and union and uh, Trinitarian doctrine, we'll find that maybe the gap is not so unbridgeable after all. Now, there's no doubt that, you know, if we're talking about the question of the vision of God, um, there are different accounts, clearly, I think, coming from Palamas and from Aquinas and others in the Christian in the Christian West. And we're dealing here with a reality which ultimately escapes human uh, cognition and capacity to understand. But it seems to me there's a, although the two approaches, say Aquinas' account of the beatific vision and Palamas's account of the vision of God as light, are not formally compatible, but nonetheless, approaching the issue, the same issue, the same reality from a different perspective, there is some sort of overall non-incompatibility, at least, between them. Anyway, all that to say that I think Palamas absolutely can be a bridge figure between Greek East and Latin West, like Aquinas, for that matter. <laughs> uh, we still have about 10 minutes. I'd like to go a little bit previously in the chat box, <clears throat> just before Monk Maximus at 6.07. I will read this, I believe it's not mistaken. He says, in one footnote of your book, I assume he's referring to the orthodox readings of Aquinas. Um, you mentioned a conversation between George Florovsky and Para Sofroni, where Florovsky says that Duns Scotus's formal distinction is a better counterpart to Aquinas's distinction. As far as Palamas's theology of energy is concerned, could you explain more about how Duns Scotus might help Orthodox and Catholics? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for the question, Jonutz. Jonutz is an old student of mine from Cambridge days. It's very nice to hear from him uh, again. So, uh, the formal distinction, right. Now, let's make a general comment to start with. Um, debates about Palamon does he uphold? Uh, if he was clearly working with, within the sort of established framework of scholastic, Western scholastic theology with various different sort of forms of distinction and so forth. And this is why sometimes the phrase real distinction is trotted out. And as I mentioned, that's not a phrase we find in Palamas. It's clear that the distinction is extramental, if you like, but it's, it's um, he doesn't use the phrase real distinction. And even if he had used the phrase real distinction, there's no particular reason to suppose that what he would mean by real distinction would exactly correspond to the way in which the term distinctio realis is used in Aquinas or, or other figures in, in, in the Latin world. So I think discussions about what sort of distinction this is based on Latin scholastic categories of distinction will only get us so far. I mean, I've suggested elsewhere you know, in terms of this distinction being a distinction that unites, that we might call it a distinctio unificans, a distinction that unites, which of course isn't a category within Latin scholastic theology. And it's not really, we, we only get so far in terms of the categories of um, Latin scholastic theology, various distinctions. Idea of the formal distinction is the distinction between essence energy is a formal distinction. Interestingly enough, it's um, it, it's a way of thinking about the distinction which has, I think, some potential, some potential. Um, 
it is used by some later Palamites to articulate and defend the distinction. So in particular, Gennadius Scalarius, who was the first patriarch of Constantinople after the fall of the city to the Turks in 1453, um, also present at the Reunion Council Ferrara Florence, and the leader of the anti-unionist party in the years after um, the Council of Florence, but interestingly, a great disciple of Thomas. Uh, Gennadius, one of his <coughs> little abridgments of um, Aquinas that he would carry around that uh, I know of no better or greater disciple of Thomas in either East or West than, uh, than myself, basically, and um, hails him as a very excellent teacher, et cetera, et cetera, except in those areas in which his church disagrees with ours, e.g. energy distinction. Anyhow, one of the ways in which Gennadius Scalarius talks about the essence energy distinction is as precisely as a formal distinction, and he draws directly on Dun Scotus here. And it, yeah, but I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not, I don't myself find the notion of a formal distinction satisfactory for articulating what Gregory is trying to do with the, um, the essence energies union and distinction, but as a way of sort of fostering relations and sort of finding a shared language between East and West, it's certainly been used in the past and could be used um, in the future. But yes, I don't want to sort of go on record and say, uh, saying that the essence energy distinction is a formal distinction. I'm going to skip down a little bit in the chat box to 6.15 for uh, the Paul Hellmeyer. Did Palamas read Proclus, i.e. was his theory of energies also inspired by his theory of Henads? Or was it only inspired by Dionysius? Yeah, I'm going to say, as far as I know, not, um, and that any sort of Proclus in Palamas would come, as you suggest, um, Father Paul, um, through um, Dionysius. And in general, um, there have been quite a few uh, moves to interpret Palamas in Neoplatonic terms. Um, Andre von Ivanka does this, and uh, Actually, John Milbank does this, and, and not to Palamas's uh, credit. So I, you know, I really would downplay the Neoplatonic dimension generally um, in Palamas, and I don't see any kind of direct influence of Proclus. I would go up up to uh, James Schaefer, who wrote about uh, fifteen minutes ago. To what, Maybe, if any yeah. extent, was Palamas's <laughs> thinking about creatures' participation in God's energy? Influenced by Aquinas' thinking about God's primary causality and creatures' secondary causality. Reading that also brings to mind, actually, the, the notion of uh, causality in Dionysus, who is one of the sources, therefore, for Aquinas. Yes. Yes. Thank you, uh, Jamie, for that. Uh, Jamie is one of my colleagues here at Marquette. Thank you for that question, uh, Jamie. Um, well, Palamas did not know Aquinas. Um, in the first instance. So what we're dealing with here, as Father Bernhard has um, suggested, is I think a common uh, Dionysian um, inheritance. But I'm very glad you picked up on the whole cosmic dimension of Palamas's, uh, and I know, Jamie, you're very interested in this. Um, it seems to me that Palamas does have potential for an environmental theology and understanding of the coherence between God and the world. But yes, similarities with Aquinas would be down here, I think, to a common source in uh, Dionysus. 